from the classroom to the emergency room, OR and beyond. You're joining Trauma ICU Rounds with your host, Dr. Dennis Kim. I think that diversity and equality is super important in everything in the world. I think that not only diversity of gender or race, but diversity of thought, right? Like, it's again, if you think, if you think always in a box and you just go, you know, and you never question yourself, then you can be very sure, but very wrong about about things in life. So I think it serves ourselves better as professionals and it serves our patients better to have inclusion and diversity and equity. That's Dr. Paula Ferrada, who joins us on Rounds this week. Dr. Ferrada is a professor of surgery at Virginia Commonwealth University, or VCU, where she serves as the medical director of the Trauma Surgical ICU and program director of the Surgical Critical Care Fellowship. Dr. Ferrada is extensively involved in organizational and committee work, both nationally and internationally. In fact, you probably won't find a major surgical society in which she is not actively involved in some leadership role. In addition to being a busy clinician, researcher, and educator, Paul's professional passions include ultrasonography, global surgery, as well as advocating for and supporting initiatives to enhance diversity, inclusion, and equality through efforts such as East for All. I recently had an opportunity to sit down with Dr. Farad and discuss several clinically and professionally relevant topics in trauma and critical care, from a circulation-first approach to patients presenting in hemorrhagic shock to the use of Reboa, POCUS, and the importance of diversity and early career involvement in organizations such as the Pan American Trauma Society, the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, and of course, the American College of Surgeons. Dr. Ferrada, so great to catch up with you. I know you're on call, I'm post-call, and so why don't we just jump right in and let's get down to discussing this whole concept of a circulation-first approach to patients in hemorrhagic shock. So it's been a couple of years since you published the results of your multi-institutional study looking at the concept of a circulation-first approach to trauma patients. And certainly this isn't a new concept. In fact, like many things in trauma and in surgery, what's old is new again And in fact, organizations like the American Heart Association and the ACLS program have advocated for a CAB versus ABC approach for a while. So circulation first in trauma patients, how did this come about and why should we consider doing this? It seems like heresy, especially given that we've always been taught that the primary survey of ATLS begins with the A, B, and C. So my father is a trauma surgeon. And Colombia, South America, which like in Colombia, that's being a surgeon of the body. They take care of everything. Like short of neurosurgery, they're vascular surgeons, cardiac surgeons, thoracic surgeons, trauma surgeons, does everything. And since I was very little, I used to go with the operating room with him because he was allowed. My first case that I scrubbed in, I was 12 years old. It was a ruptured AAA. And I fell in love with surgery because it was amazing. But I have always seen my dad practice this when somebody was bleeding to death and whatever the reason of hypovolemic shock was, the idea was to be ready for uh, source control at the same time that you were intubating the patient because it also makes physiological sense, but you see it when you practice enough that as soon as you intubate the patient, the patient coats, right? So you better be ready. 
So vascular surgeons were ahead of us in this sense because they created these balloons to stop bleeding and to way before intubation. And that it makes complete sense for trauma. Why physiologically that happens? Well, first you gasp. When you're bleeding, you start gasping to increase your venous return, to increase your cardiac output. If you sedate somebody and paralyze them, they're not going to gasp anymore. And then if that wouldn't kill somebody, you increase, you put an ET tube sedation paralytics that are going to vasolate you, right? You're trying to keep that diastolic blood pressure to perfuse your heart and your brain. You're not doing that anymore. And then if that was not enough, then you give a positive pressure ventilation breath to kink the IVC, stop the uh, venous return, stop the cardiac output, and that's why people die when you are bleeding out, when you're in extremis and you intubate them. So the concept of circulation, for, so it was very interesting that people that take care of really, and I'm not saying it applies for everybody, but if you have a tension pneumothorax, you probably need to put a chest tube before you intubate somebody because you're going right. to make it worse. And when ATLS, states airway breathing circulation i think everybody started like extrapolating that to intubate and it doesn't need to be airway does not need to be intubate it could be just oxygen or open the airway if you have it obstructed right but our job and our mission as trauma surgeons is trying to give the patient the best chances of surviving and it was puzzling to me when sometimes so when you work with people enough, your emergency medicine physicians and your anesthesiologists, you know, they understand also hypodemic shock. So they know that, you know, we're going to start your blood. We're going to have all the medications ready. We're going to make sure that you prep the patient. Now we have Revoa. So maybe you have the catheter ready or you're ready to opening the chest for a multiple contract wound patients because you know that patient is going to crash the moment that the paralytics and the sedations go in. But when you're with a team that they're not very used to it, they look at you like you're a unicorn, right? When you say, do not intubate first. Oh, but the patient <laughs> is passing out. Just bag him because you know that the patient is going to not do well if you do it differently. So that's where he came out across. We got together with it. So I first look at the data of ECU retrospectively, and we figure out that people that were intubated first, 70 well, I'm talking about like in extremis dying. 75% of them died. And then people that got an ER thoracotomy at the same time that getting tubed, that was before reward times, 50% of them died, which is still a bunch of people dying, but they also were in extremis multiple gunshot wounds exsanguinating in near code, right? So then we sent that for WSC was a poster. Uh, one of our medical students that now is a resident in Arizona presented it. And then... Yeah, it was great. It was great. It was great working with her too. And then the next step was to do in the multicentric trial that was sponsored by the OASD. We published that and we realized, you know, people are doing it all over the country already. And as you mentioned before, in medical codes, people already realized that starting circulation was better for returning brain function and actually keeping people alive. And then we decided to do a prospective trial that is the Eastern Association for Trauma is sponsoring. And we're not done with that yet because we need to accumulate more data. I don't think that we'll be able to ever randomize things because also I think it's hard to follow protocols when people are extremists, like in, in extremists, I think emotions run high. But that's how it was born. That's what we found out. And that's, I think, where we're going. But I can bet you that all people clinically active people that are taking care of people that are dying of hypodemic shock know exactly that what I'm talking about. Oh, absolutely. I think we see this uh, all too frequently where patients come in, they're hemodynamically unstable. 
obtunded and the knee-jerk reaction is to intubate the patient with no thought to what's happening with their circulatory status and uh, the potential use for other adjuncts like Reboa that may help stabilize or improve their cerebral as well as myocardial perfusion. And so you've obviously been a part of a a number of these Reboa multi-institutional studies, as well as research looking into the utility of endovascular hybrid rooms in the management of the hemodynamically unstable trauma patient. So how has your experience been to date? Share with our listeners the successes or some of the difficulties in implementing the Reboa program at your hospital. Right. And I wanted to also highlight the Colombians. The Colombians have done an amazing job. Dr. Carlos Ortonio's group have done an amazing job of doing this also, at least getting access to get ready and patients that are pregnant that have uh, acreta or percreta uh, placenta that we know is going to like bleed a lot. So how are things going to be you? I know that this is a very controversial subject. So there's people that feel really strong that Reboa is not going to work and a bunch of other stuff. And there's people that feel really strong that Reboa should be used all the time. I think the truth, like everything in life is in the middle. I think that that is going to be really hard to prove uh, survival benefit. I think when you're dealing with somebody that is dying from bleeding, you have to have all the tools and the toys and the tricks and you need to be facile with your hands and then think fast and do what the patient needs. So stopping bleeding and giving blood. If you give all the blood and the blood ends up in the, in the floor, it's not going to help the patient, right? Or in inter, intra-abdominal cavity. So I think the key is fast uh, proximal control. So multiple gunshot wounds, I usually just open the chest and clamp the aorta because, I mean, if the patient is, is on the verge of like cardiovascular arrest, why? because I don't know where the bullets are and I don't know what the problem is. And sometimes when you open the chest, you also take care of attention, pneumotension, hemo, or stop bleeding immediately if it's in the lung. I think a couple of times I have used Reboa in patients that are, for example, that have penetrating injuries, but they're all on the right side. So why would you have to open another cavity if you can get proximal control somewhere else? And I understand that people are saying, oh, the benefit, sometimes people are using it too much. Truth is in the middle. If you have a patient that is dying of bleeding, then I think, like I said before, your mission and your job is to do whatever it takes to try to give that patient a chance at surviving. Absolutely. Yeah. We've uh, been using Reboa pretty frequently here. And I think, like you said, it's in the middle. We need to identify the right patient population that will benefit. And, you know, these comparisons between Reboa and resuscitative thoracotomy might not necessarily be the right comparison. I agree. So early you mentioned the experience in Colombia, and obviously you've done a lot of work with the Pan American Trauma Society. But can you comment on the use of Reboa in lower resource settings like South America? Right. So Dr. Carlos Ordonez has been a pioneer in Latin America with Reboa. So that's in some places because the ER, Reboa catheter, the one that we have here that doesn't need a wire and it's just placed and inflated, is not available because of different resources and resource allocation, right? But the balloon therapy has been used for a while in low resource income places. It's just a different types of balloons and again, trying to just stop bleeding. And then, so there's, like you mentioned, Pan American Trauma Society that has been a great opportunity to get to know more the international colleagues and be able to give something back. 
there's also a damage control resuscitation group with Dr. Duchesne and Tal and Dr. Mega Brenner and Dr. Brian Colton that also is trying to gather international experience, not only about Yes, circulation first, give balance resuscitation, don't give a bunch of salt water to your patient because that's not what they're losing, hypotensive resuscitation, all of the things that will, again, give the patient the best chance at meaningful survival. So when you're assessing these patients coming into the trauma bay, and we're talking about the patients who are in extremis or unstable, is this really something you're gathering just from the vital signs? How does the physical exam play into your assessment? And then, of course... I'm talking with Dr. Farada, we have to talk about ultrasound. So funny that you mentioned vital signs are not part of the primary survey, right? If you have somebody that he had a gunshot wound and they're gray and they're like not responsive, it's not because they had a traumatic brain injury, it's because they don't have enough perfusion and blood supply to the brains. So touching the patient, I know some of the stuff, you know, clammy, cool, diaphoretic, when you have the leaves that cannot stick on the patient, bad sign. So all of the things are more, and then I, once in a while, we get somebody that is new to take care of. It's different when you have somebody that is bleeding slowly, let's say from a spleen, rather than bleeding to death really rapidly, right? So once in a while, you have somebody that is not very experienced at taking care of this, and they're concerned about not getting a blood pressure. I'm like, that's not part of the primary survey. Do you have a pulse? Do you have something to work with and start treating and questioning the cavities? That you, I have somebody in penetrating trauma the only place where I use the ultrasound is to see if they have fluid around the heart or if I can see which cavity do I go first. Sometimes by the time that I have the ultrasound in my hand, I already have bilateral chest tubes because that treats the imminent cause of death and gives me a diagnosis. What about the regular trauma patients? You know, oftentimes once we're through our primary survey, we get a set of vitals. Depending on where you are, sometimes the fast is already done. But what's the role or is there an expanding role for ultrasound in the assessment of either the trauma patient or the sick critical care patient? So, yeah, here for the last 10 years that I have been here at VCU, I would try to develop a training for ultrasound, but not necessarily. I mean, the fast is important and it's the basic and we all should know how to do it. It should not get in the way of treating patients. It should be a tool to help us treat patients. But going a little bit above and beyond that, we have done a couple of studies using ultrasound, taking a look at the heart in the trauma bay so we can help us guide resuscitation. And it was super useful, especially in patients older than 65. And I think it was in the era where either in outside hospitals or EMS or ourselves, we were giving patients too much crystalloid. And you could see those hearts, those dry ventricles that are plump, those IVCs that are huge, especially in a non-intubated patient, it shouldn't be. And it helped us. And also we discovered a couple of uh, pulmonary emboli that were huge, that were the reason of the hypertension and it had nothing to do with bleeding. We also use it in, in the ICU. And in the ICU, we look at the heart, we look at contractility, we look at effusion. And if it's compromising the function, we look at the right side versus the left. And we also look at the pleura and the lung. And granted that, you know, echocardiogram is not as easy as fast because the heart is in a different axis for everybody. And, you know, they have chest tubes, you have the lung sometimes hogging the heart and it doesn't let you see. I think the information that you get when you know how to do it is very good. And in the ICU, because you're in positive pressure ventilation, that pushes your heart into your abdomen. So it's a 
window that we are used to doing because of the past actually gives you tremendous amount of information. You can see contractility, fluid status, right versus left and effusion in one view. Yeah, I think it's uh, so important. And you've obviously done a lot of work with ultrasound, writing textbooks on ultrasound for surgeons, as well as uh, the American College of Surgeons annual meeting. That's a great course. I've taken it for those residents, fellows out there that have not. I would strongly encourage you to take this course because it really is sort of a, a pretty holistic and comprehensive approach, not just to fast, that's sort of just the basics, but really looking at things like cardiac function, the IVC and things like that. Now, um, where do you think we are in terms of surgical critical care fellowship training as a program director and someone who's actively involved in education? Do you think we're where we should be when it comes to ultrasound training and credentialing? No, no is the short answer, but there's a longer answer with this. I think every program is different and some programs are heavy in training people how to use ultrasound as an echocardiogram, pleura, lung, and for everything else, right? You can use ultrasound to guide your procedures. You can use ultrasound to see if you have the hissens. It's a tool like the stethoscope. And it's there. And as surgeons, we do a lot of procedures. We should be the ones pioneering this, right? We understand anatomy like nobody else because we see the belly. We touch the heart. We know exactly what we're looking. So yes, we should pay more attention in training ourselves, training each other and creating that credentialing process. So with the Society of Program Directors, Surgical Critical Care Program Directors, we created a curriculum that is suggested and it's a tier curriculum. So at the very least, train people how to look at a heart. And if you want to get more technical about it, then you can learn how to measure left ventricular outflow tract and calculate cardiac output. And so it's a tier. I recommend for anybody that is interested to take a look at that. There's a, it's a tier curriculum. The American College of Surgeons offers the National Ultrasound Faculty Certification, meaning you go and you take a course and then you prove that you can do it. Then you teach a couple and you become National Ultrasound Faculty Certified. And that can help you not only have that certification, but also teach, which I think is important. Credentialing process is different. We, a few years ago, I want to say six years ago, we got together the emergency. You have to work as a team. My advice is that if you want to work in credential and start billing for your services and have a process, you cannot go surgeons alone. So we created a, a team of people that were composed for the emergency medicine doctors that they actually have been using it and have even a fellowship on it. We have OB-GYN, we had radiologists, we have a cardiologist that actually had buy-in on the concept because they also don't want to come, like you use echocardiogram to see if your fluid bolus is helping, if your LASIK right. help, if your presses are helping. The cardiology fellow or cardiology tech is not going to be there every 50 minutes or every hour to see if your maneuver functions, right? So that has to be on you. And so we create a group of people that had credit, like they actually believed in the concept. We look at the AMA recommendations and they said that anybody that is expert on your field can credential somebody else. And we went through the Association of Emergency Medicine Physicians that had been a little bit ahead of us in the process of credentialing. Mm -hmm. And they recommend 25 ultrasound for organ systems. So 25 cardiac, 25 pleura, 25 gallbladder, 25 liver in order to maintain your credentialing, having somebody from that your own discipline kind of QI in the system, in a QI system. So that took us a year to actually get all in the same page. But I'm so proud of the outcome because now in VCU, if you're 
a family medicine person that wants to learn ultrasound, you can take a course, you can get QI, you can get credential, and you can do it so you can help patients. That's amazing. Because it's not, you know, if we have to start understanding medicine that is, we're all here for the same reason. We want to help the patient in need, and we all have a different set of skills. And it shouldn't be a turf battle and who does it and who doesn't. It should be like we all helping each other and learn from each other so we can, at the end, achieve what we want, which is the patient getting better. Great to hear how that uh, process worked at your institution. I know um, several different places have different ways of rolling these programs out, but I think what you mentioned about the multidisciplinary and coordinated efforts are absolutely critical. In terms of the SCCPDS Society and the uh, ultrasound program there, one of my friends from UCSD, Dr. Jay Doucette, I know he's also mm-hmm. been involved quite a bit with yeah. ultrasonography, and he also had a double AST multicenter study looking at the use of fluid responsiveness in the trauma bay using ultrasound, and that tended to predict, you know, the amount of volume or crystalloids or fluids patients got over the first 24 hours. And so is that something that you're looking at routinely in patients who you think are at risk for bleeding in the emergency room? Yes. So I work with Dr. Doucette on that study. And then, yes, it does predict how much fluid you need. It does. We did a randomized control trial, I think, a year or a year before we enroll in helping Dr. Doucette with his study. And we found that most people that were hypotensive were bleeding, but some people that were hypertensive were not bleeding and then needed a different treatment. But because we were seeing people, like, I think that when you're bleeding slowly, for example, liver, spleen, your IVC is thinner, faster. And that made people go to the OR faster, repeat mm-hmm. the ultrasound faster, not going to CT scan as fast, or going to the ICU more, going to the operating room faster. So I think, again, I don't think ultrasound will save a life, but a surgeon with a brain and the right tools can. And I also think that, you know, in the trauma bay, we should be touching the patient and doing everything. In the ICU, I see people going farther away from the bed. I think that's why the numbers get bigger and bigger, but uh, so people can actually see them. But I think that there's something that I personally, I haven't studied or I prove it, but I think the fact that you're touching the patient gives you and is you the one that has the question that is looking for the answer gives you is much different than asking another service that you have to like explain the clinical correlation in, in higher yield in answering your question yeah no i 100% agree with that and i think laying hands on the patient is so critical especially in patients who you think are in shock or sick how sensitive or specific is it i'm not too sure as well but Yeah, you know, when you have a patient who's sick and they're cold and they're vasoconstricted and mottled and their knees are, you know, pink or purple, you know that that patient is going to need some more aggressive resuscitation. In terms of uh, fluid resuscitation in the critically ill patient, one of the big things that people are talking about these days is over-resuscitation and the fact that we're giving too much fluids and crystalloids to our patient. Mm -hmm. Is there any role for ultrasound or any of these other things, maneuvers, to help us determine when patients are ready to be de-resuscitated or when we can start diuresing them? I mean, is vasopressors a contraindication to something like de-resuscitation? Not in our ICU. So I think that, of course, if somebody's bleeding, do not give them uh, vasopressors or anotropics. That's like the reason why Levofed was baptized, leave them dead. In like the 1980s, <laughs> because people were giving like, if you're bleeding to death, you give a fat. It's not the way right. to go. 
yeah, we use the ultrasound all the time to take a look at the heart, see if the heart is empty or full, to give us an idea about also how the lungs are, like an overloaded lung is full of bead lines and you will be able to see it. And some people might be, you will be making the heart, but actually have extra fluid everywhere and you can make maneuvers now that you're in like the a la carte resuscitation rather than in the emergency setting. So, but we use several tools. We use the ultrasound, we have the Vigileo, you know, whatever you have, you don't have to use one. Whatever you have is something that could be useful. And in patients that are sometimes, you know, swans, we don't use it anymore, but sometimes that is the one thing that can measure pulmonary hypertension and your PA pressures, right? Absolutely. It's not very good for volume, but it tells you about pulmonary hypertension. So yeah, we use several tools to de-resuscitate the patient. And if you are in a situation where you're fluid overloaded and then your right ventricle looks huge and your septum is pushing against your left, then maybe a little bit of liver fat will help you. And even sometimes a Lasix drip will increase the the blood pressure. So it's all about the part. I love trauma because it's like you have to think fast. You have to take the patient. You have to be fast paced. But the ICU to me, I think is it makes you smarter. And also it's like you have it's like you're cooking almost. Right. You're like a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Marinate on antibiotics. Right. And I think it's like you get better and better the more that you do it. I think it's important to keep up with what other people are seeing and read a lot, but nothing replaces clinical, like boots on the ground experience. I think that you can hear about, it's all gossip until you actually do it, until you actually are in front of the patient and have to, you know, be a doctor. Now, you did mention the vasopressors in the bleeding patient, and one of our colleagues and friends, Dr. Carrie Sims, recently published a study uh, looking at uh, low-dose supplementation of arginine vasopressin, and they showed that these patients received a couple units less of RBCs or blood products. Is that something that you envision being rolled out on a wider basis? Again, I think that if your patient is dying, a systolic blood pressure of 40 is not good for anybody. So if you have to supplement with pressors so your patient will not die immediately, for sure. But again, I think all of that, because some of it is science and some of it is clinical experience. So I don't know if we're going to be able to implement it widely. And I don't know that the resuscitation of the bleeding patient is one thing only, right? It's like now, Dr. Sims, who I admire greatly, she's a great physician and a clinician in basic sciences. So yes, so now she has something written that says that you can give a little pressors. But, you know, nothing is a dog. It's really hard. You have to step back and realize that all that we have are tools and you have to use them when indicated and with good measure. And nothing is dogma. You can't say we're going to give pressures to everybody that is bleeding or not give pressures to anybody that is bleeding, right? And the pendulum has to stay in the middle. Now, the over-resuscitation, when I first came here, we had a lot of abdominal compartment syndrome. In fact, I don't know if you remember Dr. Ivaturi, who's one of the people that defined it, used to be my boss. We started doing ultrasound echocardiogram and at least all the burn abdominal compartment syndrome went away. We don't have that anymore. Interesting, yeah. I know. So, so it's all about euvolemia. So it is hard for us as human because I don't think the human brain does frequency that well, right? You remember the last week of what happened and then that becomes the rule. But throughout the history of medicine, the danger becomes when we, I think the most dangerous worst is 
you know, you're not going to try this because you have always done it this way. Like if you start thinking we have always done it that way and that's how you're always going to do it and you're not willing to try anything different, that's when you have to start questioning yourself because you start putting people in boxes and some patients do not read the book. Yeah, absolutely. Always question the dogma. Are you using things like a passive leg raising to help determine fluid responsiveness? And what do you see in terms of the applicability to, let's say, the multiply injured patients with leg and pelvic fractures and an open abdomen, for example? Right. A couple of things about that. So I read the paper, I think it was New England Journal of Medicine or JAMA, one of the two that says that, that nothing predicted it except lifting the legs. And I read it and I'm like, I agree with it. On, but in our patients, which patients are you going to be able to lift the leg, right? Um, Maybe Trendelenburg. But we see like, and they didn't compare it with ultrasound. So we see that you lift the leg or you put the patient in Trendelenburg and the IVC looks a little bit fuller. So it makes sense. Now you have an open abdomen. Sometimes you cannot see the IVC because there's air because you have an apera. You can look at the IVC in the middle clavicular line right here. I have never failed to find it in a human. Right here in this line, if you put the probe vertically, it's going to be your IVC. Or if you're thin and can reach enough, you can also see it in the mid-axillary line. Or also, you know, since IVC is not a perfect measurement, it's kind of similar to CVP. Take a look at the IJ. Take, you're doing, you're using the IJ to do an to do a line anyway. Right. A huge IJ, you're not hypolimic. Right. No, great right? points. Yeah, yeah. No, very good points. Very good points. In terms of the resuscitation strategy that you're using at VCU, are you giving pre-hospital plasma? And what's the latest and greatest with regards to TXA? Is that something you're kind of giving across the board for potentially bleeding patients? No. So we used to. So again, it's a pendulum. So there's uh, at VCU, we don't have a thing that says that you have to give TXA pre um, in the EMS. There's a group of EMS here that gives TXA all the time to people that are bleeding. We don't have that protocolized yet for the EMS part. Right. But, you know, as everybody that has rested this literature, the pendulum swings, right? So people that get too much TXA or they get it after the period of time that is indicated, they're going to have clotting complications and poor outcomes. And, you know, I think personally, I think the best treatment for bleeding is to stop it <laughs> and to stop it really fast, right? Yep. And then give whatever you lost. Give one-to-one to one resuscitation. Transplant surgeons do not believe that platelets add too much to it. But, you know, I mm-hmm. agree with the FFP. The FFP is not only helping you clot, but it's also a buffer for the system. We participated in Sperry's trial, trial mm-hmm. and the and giving the FFP. So I do think FFP should be like our go-to and we have ffp in the trauma bay that being said our protocol for resuscitation of vcu goes pack for goes first then ffp gotcha gotcha yeah we're working currently on a whole blood resuscitation sort of transfusion program here but still haven't rolled that out same we don't have the whole blood yet but whole blood seems like the way to go until we find flaws with that too until right. we start giving whole blood to people <laughs> that doesn't need any we'll find flaws with that too absolutely there's, there's a little bit of art in our job of being scientists yes so much art in fact and sometimes very little science <laughs> <laughs> Recently, I saw on Twitter that you uh, published a textbook with your father. Oh, yes. Uh, we have two. Two? So we have one. Yes. So we have one in English. My dad published this textbook in Colombia that became the textbook that everybody in medical school read for surgical emergencies. 
like it was like basically teaching people how to it was called literally that in spanish emergencias quirúrgicas surgical emergencies is basically how to diagnose treat and temporize it because in some places in latin america you don't have a surgeon immediately sure and then him and i were like oh let's write something together blah, blah, blah. so a few years ago i don't remember it was it must have been three years ago we finished the Spanish version of it, which is like a very a thick, big book in Spanish. And surprisingly, it's my first language, but because I have been here in the United States for so long, speaking English in medicine, I was like, oh my God, it was like the hardest thing to do was to actually write stuff that made sense in Spanish. But anyway, we published it. I think he has done really well, and I think he's a good resource. And then we decided to do a smaller book that it was an atlas of surgery, of trauma. Because we, I mean, I really like the way that, for example, Top Gun describes how to do procedures. And I think a lot of stuff is not really spelled out. For example, you know that residents graduate with 0.7 fasciotomies, right? And Mm -hmm. it's such a simple procedure. So I guess instead of looking at a YouTube video while you go to the OR, then now they have this resource that they can see. And we had people from all Latin America, some partners from VCU help, and then some people from Latin America that are experienced trauma surgeons help. And there is very cool because it has some pictures of cadavers and how to do it. So it's basically, it's not a lot of words, it's more uh, visual. Yeah, so please do make sure you check that out. It's the Atlas of Trauma, Operative Techniques, Complications, and Management. I've seen a few of the plates, and the images look absolutely fantastic. Thank you. So, Dr. Ferrada, in terms of mentorship, I mean, you've been doing quite a bit of work with regards to the Young Fellows Association through the American College of Surgeons, and you've obviously done a great job in terms of expanding diversity and inclusion through organizations like EAST and the EAST for All initiative. Anything you want to share with the up-and-comers or residents regarding how they can get more involved with organizational work and maybe some early career advice for fellows who are just starting out in their careers as trauma and acute care surgeons? Right. So I think that my philosophy of life is that if you are not perfectly happy happy with what you see in the world, sitting down and just complaining about it, it's not going to do anything but just burn you out and make you unhappy, right? I think that like getting to work, again, the same um, philosophy, just getting to work, find out how to change the system, create alliances with people that think like you and then find ways around it until you get what you want, right? So the East for all is funny. We had a group of people. Um, it was Dr. Tanya Sacristone, Dr. Ryan Williams, Rishi Ratham, and Rob Winfield. And we used to just have phone call meetings as friends in saying, how do we talk about inclusion? How do we talk about diversity? How do we talk about structural violence? How do we, because it affects our patients, it affects ourselves. And it was informal. It had nothing to do at the time with any organization. It was just a group of friends that, you know, we live in different cities, so we cannot meet for beers, but just talking about it and saying, let's send proposals here, let's send, and just strategizing. Because I also think, you know, when I talk to you about the VCU thing, that you cannot work alone, collaboration is a new competition. The only way that we're going to get stuff done is to work together and find people that think alike and then figure it out. And then Dr. Andrew Bernard asked Dr. Sacristan and Dr. Williams to chair the committee, and a lot of interesting things came out of it. 
I think that we were allowed to actually talk about it and talk how it affects us as healthcare professionals. I think um, it's such a broad spectrum because it's not, it's also important for our patients as well. But I think um, you have to acknowledge at some point you. We are so busy taking care of patients and then sometimes kind of not acknowledging, ignoring and forgetting that the things that affect you and, you know, nothing comes from that. And we found common themes and we were able to talk about it. And I think it was very well received. I think that diversity and uh, equality is super important in everything in the world. I think that not only diversity of gender, of race, but diversity of thought, right? Absolutely. Like, it's again, if you think always in a box and you just go and you never question yourself, then you can be very sure, but very wrong about about things in life. So I think it serves ourselves better as professionals and it serves our patients better to have inclusion and diversity and equity. So advice. I think the Eastern Trauma Association for me has been super important in my career development. I think for young trauma surgeons, that's the association to join. I I think you get experience. You get, first of all, the people are nice and normal and I mean, we're all having as normal as surgeons can be. So it's family oriented. It helps you develop as a leader and it helps you like do things of test and error and and you're surrounded by friends, right? So it feels like you're growing together with this group of people that you're at the same level and supporting each other. And again, I think that maybe in the past there was a lot of like competition for academics. I think that I or at least it's my perception that us a younger generation, although like I'm not as young as I think anymore, but our younger generation are growing up in a way where we understand that we need to help each other. We need to surround ourselves by people that are smarter than us. We need to support growth in academics and the growth of each other instead of blocking it or, you know, be upset about it, right? Nothing gives me more joy than seeing one of my former fellows of my friends doing something awesome, Right. And I think that's important. And then Young Fellows Association is also, we have a mentoring program. We have a way of getting involved in the college. We have, you know, again, to increase diversity and equity and representation of young people in the American College of Surgeons. This is the American College of Surgeons, right? Young people make up 40% of the membership. So then we should be included in decisions. We should be included in the Congress. We should be included. And there's a bunch of people that are young that are experts already in what they're doing. Yeah, I have to agree. I think this is such strong work that's being done. And I think that for surgery, especially as a specialty, this is a long time coming. So it's so great to see the increasing amount of diversity and the emphasis on inclusion that we're seeing. And I also think that the work that's being done with regards to mentorship and sponsorship have also been pivotal in terms of helping to foster early career development among those residents and fellows who are thinking about pursuing a surgical career or trauma surgical critical care as a fellowship. Now, shifting gears a little bit, one of the other things that really does come up quite a bit these days is the concept of work-life balance or balance in general. Can you comment on some of the strategies or things that you've done to maintain balance in your very busy professional and personal life? I think that it's something that I get asked all the time about like having a balance and having a life. And I think 
for uh, people that are in residency or medical students that are concerned about that. I think just do what you love and things will fall into place. And nothing, and you know what? I stopped. I was striving for balance. It's never going to happen. So I just strive for just being happy, right? Being happy with my unbalanced, crazy life that I love. And, you know, I think that maybe that message, yeah. just strive for happiness, which is different for everybody. Of course. Everybody has their own version of happiness and how it should be. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to share something with the listeners maybe that uh, most people don't know? I mean, you've had a very interesting mm -hmm. career and childhood. And, and what are some maybe some interesting facts about you that you want the listeners or audience to know? Oof, there's a lot of stuff <laughs> <I never laughs> that people don't know. So... I got in touch with surgery really young. Like I told you before, yeah. I was 12 years old when I saw my first patient and I fell in love with surgery and I couldn't shake it off. And my dad tried to convince me to do something else because he was like, oh, maybe you should do dermatology. I'm like, yeah, I thank you. But I actually like to be nothing wrong with dermatology. No, of course, of course. But I'm just saying like, you know, and I think everything also like in the research projects and everything that I have done in my life, I feel sometimes Okay, this is something that nobody knows about. Oh, great. All right. I think that passions find you. And if you are placing your life where you can listen, I mean, I'm not saying we all have, I mean, inner, inner dialogue, yeah, right? I'm well, not no, saying absolutely. that. The voices in my head never say anything bad. I'm just saying <laughs> we all have an inner dialogue and we all have passion in something that we want to do. But I think we need to be in a place in our lives where we're able to listen. Listen is not the right word. Feel. Yeah. What is it that you want to do that will make you happy? What is the direction that you want to take? What is the thing that you're missing? And I don't think you need like a meditation camp to do it, right? But you need to be in tune to your life in order to be able to find that. For me, for example, is water. If I go to the ocean or I go to the river and I just stare at it, light goes up and whatever, it could be the shower. I think... And writers, writers call this effective creative time. And I think because in surgery, we're running around all the time. We're like trauma, this, happy, writing, children, all of that. Sometimes you don't have that. And I think that if something had prevented me from getting burned out or getting bored or getting sad among all the, you know, hard times that we have had, in, especially now with the pandemic, is that. Like finding something that will ground you, whatever it is. Yeah, no, right. I think the... Maybe it's a glass of wine, <laughs> but whatever. Yeah, it, is, it used to be a glass of wine. It now it's more like half a bottle. <laughs> I think that that's important, and it's different for everybody. But I think it's just if you can find a place where you can actually really be in tune with yourself and know exactly know what is it that you need. Yeah. No, I think those are. Fantastic words of wisdom. And yeah, just being able to actually tune in and listen to that inner dialogue sometimes can be tough. It's tough. Right. Like you said, there's just so much going on and we get so caught up with the business of life. And just to take that moment to pause and reflect upon all the good things that we have and that we're blessed with. Right. So I guess in terms of wrapping things up, Dr. Ferrada, when it comes to the circulation first approach to resuscitation, mm -hmm. Any final points that you want to drive home or any clinical pearls that our listeners should take away? Well, I don't know where it will go in the future, but what I want to see is for us to be able to 
treat people with less dogma and more of an open mind and understanding that the things that we know and that we do and that we have are tools to help the patient in need. I don't think that it should be circulation first for every patient. Like if you have a traumatic brain injury and the only thing that you have is traumatic brain injury, that patient needs to be intubated. It's different. So, you know, have you watched the Lego movie? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Okay. So we need to be master built. <laughs> the instructions are there to help us, guide us. Right. But at the end, we need to be master builders. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. And definitely one of our kids' faves. <laughs> So that about wraps it up. Dr. Farad, I want to thank you so much for joining us on Rounds. I really appreciate it. This was great. Thank you so much. And I want to thank you for joining us on Trauma ICU Rounds. Again, if you like what you're listening to, please let us know. You can subscribe to the podcast at Apple iTunes or wherever you normally download your podcast from. Until next time, please stay safe, keep reading, take care of one another, and we'll talk soon.